Is that it? That's the whole thing? It is. It's got some powerful punch. So let's read Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So in light of this morning's passage, the sermon that Cole did such a great job delivering, let's, let's think about that for a second. I'll read it again. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I want to make a quick comment first on this. When I, when I looked at this right away, I noticed something that jumped out. It's delivered with passion. You look at it, there are, well, punctuation matters, right? Some of you English majors out there, punctuation matters. You notice there are two exclamation points on each sentence. So Paul is, is uh, God's using Paul to make these emotionally charged statements that are meant to strike us forcefully. So they are an overflow of praise and worship coming from Paul's heart as he considers what God's been doing. So does that resonate with you? When we stop to think deeply about the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God, does it cause us to feel anything, to proclaim anything? Honestly, it can be very tempting to shoehorn terms like wisdom and knowledge into um, our limited thinking or our current situation and then just press on. But what's really happening when we do that? Let's cause ourselves to slow down and dig in a bit here. So looking at the verse in simplicity, the first sentence is a forceful proclamation that God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge run deep. And Cole mentioned this morning um, that the nautically based term fathomless is sometimes used in this context. Um, as he said this morning, we don't have the ability and we don't have the tools to measure the depth of God's riches, knowledge, uh, and wisdom. The second sentence says again forcefully that you will not be able to understand his judgment or his ways. Think about, the, most of you recognize the passage from Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. It states that his ways are not our ways. It's kind of like comparing heaven and earth. God's saying here through Paul that we can't begin to think that we have him figured out. Different translations use different terms where the ESV says inscrutable, like fathomless, as was just mentioned, beyond tracing out, beyond finding out. In other words, God's ways are beyond our reach to figure out. We just don't have that capability. There's quite a chasm between what God knows and understands and the way he works and our feeble way of thinking. But that doesn't mean we just give up. Striving to know God, to have a relationship with him, and to recognize where he is and has been at work is a key part of what Paul has been discussing in the previous part of Romans. So what's the context here? We're in the second half of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. He's been laying out the plan and work of God through his people, Israel, and then the new age of redemptive history, which has begun in Jesus Christ, Especially in light of the previous chapter, chapter 10, and the first part of chapter 11, this passage 
that we're reading tonight is meant to proclaim a profound and foundational proof. It's not just Paul's opinion. Paul has been discussing the plan of salvation, the amazing history of God's covenant work with Israel, and then when they rejected him, now seeing outsiders, these Gentiles, miraculously being grafted into the tree through the gospel message. And earlier in this chapter, in verses 17 through 24, he's talking about branches being broken off and a shoot being grafted in and the tree being nourished or supported by the root, not the other way around. So he's understanding that this is coming from God himself up through the root into the tree and out to his called people to be a part of his kingdom. And then this is followed by this, the coming mystery of Israel's salvation when they, as a people, will finally turn back to him. Only God can do what Paul is describing here. He's going back and forth about how God has worked and will work on Jew and Gentile alike, and that he has a perfect plan that's being worked out by mercy and grace for his own glory. Paul, as a converted Jew, is uniquely positioned and equipped here to have seen these puzzle pieces fit together. And now in his ministry to Gentiles, for God to draw his people to himself, Jew and Gentile alike, it's his will, his plan, his purpose, his way. And Paul is just standing in awe of that. So tonight's verse is an emphatic proclamation by Paul that sums up his feelings for God's work in his people in generations past, and he's already mentioned in generations to come, and he's proclaiming to the church in Rome that what has been happening has been God carrying out his plan for redemption, first through his covenant with Israel, as we talked about, then the atoning death of Jesus as a sacrifice and his victory over death and resurrection when he points out the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice and then proclaims that salvation and justification are now open to Jew and Gentile alike, he can't help but exclaim what we see in verse 33. I'm going to ask you to take a second and think about someone in your past or can be present that you would consider knowledgeable or wise by your standards. What other qualities does that person possess? Is this someone that you would always trust in every situation for good counsel, good direction on any matter? How do you even categorize knowledge and wisdom? Do we picture this person or ourselves on this sliding scale that has this impulsive goof on one end and God on the other? And somehow they plug into this scale, and as they begin gradually maturing in their life, they're working their way toward God. Paul is saying, give it up. We're not on the same scale. He's telling us that even if we think that time and life experience will build into us knowledge and wisdom, it's, it's not even comparable doesn't even come close. God's ways are so far above us that we're basically told that they are impossible to understand or interpret. Now, that doesn't mean we aren't to strive for wisdom. 
quite the contrary, but just understand that this passage is about God's perfect riches, wisdom, and knowledge being beyond our understanding or even ability to get there. When I was a kid, we lived on a farm in northern Indiana. We had the distinct pleasure of raising sheep on this small farm, rotating small pastures, and every spring we got the pleasure of watching these lambs that had been born through the winter cooped up in the barn, now released into the barnyard and eventually out into the pasture as the grass was growing. Um, they, to be honest, they made fools of themselves very quickly. It was just understood that's what lambs did. Um, if you've ever raised sheep, you know what I'm talking about. Sheep aren't famous for their brains. In fact, quite the, op the opposite. One thing that often stood out to me was the desire for sheep, especially lambs, to wander around the pasture, and they would graze for a while, but then they would go to the fence, stick their head through an opening in the fence, and start to eat the grass on the other side. When they got all the grass that they could reach, and they couldn't reach anymore, then it was an emergency. Now, common sense says, back up. If you want fit, you know, grass on the other side of the fence, stick your head through another hole. They didn't have the wisdom to step back. Often they'd push their head, uh, they'd bleat pitifully, shoving, trying to get through that hole in the fence. It would stop at their shoulders and they would exhaust themselves and then just collapse there with their head still in the fence. Um, my dad would walk up to them on the other side and try to convince them to simply step backwards. And quite often, if needed, he would then just pop them on the nose. They would jerk their head back. And oh, they were, you know, they were free. Um, you'd think that that pop on the nose would be memorable enough. But next thing you know, that same sheep has its head in the fence doing it again. Um, they are, by George, foolish animals. Um, the sheep gave no thought as to why they were in that specific pasture or what the fence was meant to, to do, to protect them from. Um, they had no thought to the planning, the time and effort that my dad as the shepherd had put into putting them in this specific location. Um, they had no time to think about the paths or gates leading to other pastures. It was, it was there for their safety, but they didn't think in those terms. So my dad, as a shepherd, had a goal of seeing them healthy, safe, and well-fed. He planned and took action needed to foster that. He had a plan for caring for that flock for their good. In fact, he did a lot of preparing on our farm before he even purchased the first sheep to get ready for that. He spent money, time, effort, and made sacrifices for those sheep. His knowledge, wisdom, and planning, however, were not in the same league as theirs. It was just a whole different subject. If he had chosen to just dump them into the pasture with no fences and then let them figure it out for themselves, we know, we know things wouldn't have turned out so well. Um, the shepherd had a plan for their growth, and they had no insight into it. You know, folks, we're kind of in a comparable situation. God has a perfect plan 
orchestrated for our health and our good and our feeding and our prosperity toward his goal. It's his plan. And when he puts that plan into motion, we so often don't even comprehend what's going on there. In the morning service today, Cole asked us to consider a question, does, does God really want to save us? That's a rhetorical question, I would hope, in a body of believers. But the point being, sometimes we act like it's our plan and it's our focus and it's our game to play when it's God's from the beginning. So do we believe that God in absolute perfection has a plan and desire for his children to know him as the true shepherd? to see his children spiritually healthy and well-fed. We also saw this morning that Isaiah 40, 28, uh, Cole camped on this for a little bit. The, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. From those beginnings, do we believe that he has perfectly shepherded his people, Jew and Gentile alike, that he has orchestrated history with unparalleled wisdom and knowledge to the finest detail to bring us to him and to honor, for us to honor him and for, for him to bring honor to himself. His plan isn't determined by popular opinion or by what could make life easy for us. We can't presume to think that we can understand the depth of his knowledge and wisdom or how he has continually applied them to our lives collectively and individually, purposely for our growth and our good. Do we trust that he has wisely and mercifully erected a fence where needed to protect us from harm and move us toward home? Do we hope that he will lovingly pop us on the nose when required, when we are trapped or too short-sighted to see that the situation around us is dangerous? Do we recognize his voice and respond across the pasture? It's time to come back this way. And then finally, do I, like Paul, and you can ask yourself the same question, do I stand amazed at the depth of the riches and knowledge and wisdom of God, am I absolutely blown away that he has created and continually sustained the universe around us in a micro and macro level and yet has a personal interest in me as his own child? In this little slice of history that we're living in, he is drawing us to himself through a miraculous saving plan that only he fully understands. Our part is to wholly trust, to carefully listen, and to wholeheartedly exclaim our love and praise for him every time we stop to think about it. Folks, let's force ourselves to stop and think about it. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
Let's pray.